Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, may we treasure your holy word. Father, plant it deep in us. Father, we ask that you would guide, direct, and counsel us each day with your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to pick back up with a little bit of introduction and background. Tyler gave you a great, I got to read his outline, tremendously in-depth background last week. And just starting with your, with your sheet here, the Westminster Confession of Faith is regarded by almost every Reformed scholar as the most precise and accurate summary of the content of biblical Christianity ever set forth in creedal form. There are some really good prior creeds to be highly regarded. And there's, these are just some of them. Belgic Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Scott's Confession. But in almost every scholar's mind, none surpasses the theological accuracy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a 12,000-word document regarded as the wisest of creeds in its teaching and the finest in its, thank you, in its doctrinal expression. Now, who, who were the Puritans? Anybody remember who the Puritans were? Anybody? Look, look, on your, look on your third bullet point here. These were committed Protestants who wanted to, the church purged from any influence of the Roman Catholic Church. And you look down, two more bullet points. These, these commissioned pastors, elders, they were commissioned by the English Parliament. You got into this last week with Tyler's lesson. During the bloody civil war under King Charles I in the early 1640s, they were, they were called the divines, pastors and theologians who composed the document. Now, look at the bottom of your Trinity hymnal, page 847. It gives a very succinct summary of who the Westminster Assembly of Divines were. Westminster Assembly of Divines convened by the English Parliament in 1643 completed the Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism in 1647. These documents have served as the doctrinal standards, look at this key phrase here, subordinate to the Word of God for Presbyterian and other churches around the world. Yes, ma'am. Just, just take, th thank you. All right, you got it. You got it. That's right. Very good. <laughs> look at your look at your second sheet. handed out. These again, they're pastors, theologians, lay leaders from the English and Scottish churches. Look at this. This one. You see the assembly at Edinburgh convened August nineteenth, sixteen forty three. And then you see a list of the divines at the bottom. Now these are the, these are, Tyler went into great detail about representatives of counties in England, Wales, Ireland, etc. Then look at the bottom, our, our forerunners of the Presbyterian Church out of the Church of Scotland, they were called commissioners for advisory and deliberating purposes, but don't sell them short. They had a tremendous influence on this draft that was completed about four years later. And these, these theologians poured over the scriptures. Now, after they were commissioned, there was a, 
substantial debate as to where to begin this study of Reformed theology, whether to begin with the doctrine of God and the Holy Trinity or the doctrine of Scripture. Now remember, these other confessions or catechisms we looked at about they were 80 years prior to this roughly. So you're, you look back at your Scots confession, it starts with God, the creation of man, and original sin. The Belgic confession starts with the only God. The Heidelberg Catechism, you'll recognize this. Question one, that famous question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And that famous answer, that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and it goes on and on and on. It's not to say they're wrong or in error, but it's so significant that the Westminster divines begin their confessional statement with the Holy Scripture. Look at, back at your hymn book here, chapter 1 on page 847, what does it say? Anybody? Right under, of the what? Of the host, flip over. What does chapter 2 say? Of God and of the Holy Trinity. What is chapter 3? Where does it begin? Then chapter 4, we, we finally get to creation. Now, let's go back a couple steps here. This logical origin where they begin has always just really amaze me. They begin with the Holy Scripture. The driving principles behind this were twofold. Divine revelation. How is God revealed? How does God reveal Himself? How can we know who God is? Okay, That points us right back to what? The Scriptures themselves. And then you look at point number two. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. It is the final authority in all matters of theology and in all controversy of faith and life. It's not the decrees or traditions of the church. So they were really pounding this point home against the Roman Catholic Church, but sacred scripture alone. So now let's dive in and look at chapter 1, bullet point 1. Okay, I'm going to read this to you. Follow along with me, please. On page 847, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto the church. And afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto the people being now ceased. There's a lot there. But, but, notice, but notice this. The paragraph doesn't begin... The first sentence is not the Holy Scripture. It's towards the very end of the actual paragraph. It begins with this light of nature. And you're going to see that nine different times in the Westminster Confession as you read and study this. But it begins 
with the concept of general revelation. Could someone please flip to Psalm 19, 1 through 3, and someone else, Romans 1, 18 through 20. And this concept, if you've got an ESV study Bible, you can flip to the back and you'll see these exact terms. It'll go through you know, the history of, history of redemption. It'll get into general revelation, special revelation, which we'll look at next. But this general revelation is God's general, it's, it's revelation of Himself principally through nature, also through history, and through the ministry of providence to His people, and of course His marvelous works of creation. So someone please read Psalm 19, 1 through 3. This passage shouts to us, there is a God. It shouts to us that. Someone please read Romans 1, 18 through 20. Very good. This, this commentary on confessing the faith by Chad Van Dixhorn, he gives a very comforting uh, comment on this. He says, For this reason, both in our evangelism and in our defense of the faith, we should always remember that Christians should never be trying to prove the existence of God to unbelievers. We are reminding unbelievers of what they already know. Every person has been stung with a knowledge of God. There is an existence about which they may be intensely aware or which, may, or which they may consciously or subconsciously suppress. But every person knows enough about God that they ought never to stop searching for Him. That gave me uh, great encouragement there, uh, that particular comment. Special revelation. You move in to the, to the middle of paragraph 1, this light of nature, creation, providence, this general revelation is not sufficient to, to do what? What does it say in the confession? Right. Not sufficient to give knowledge of God, of His will, and what's necessary unto salvation. So this revelation God has inscripturated in the Bible Scripture reveals what is necessary to know for salvation. Someone please read 2 Timothy and please write this on your sheet. These next two verses are huge. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. And someone else please read 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Someone can start with the 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and from what you knew, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, 
Awesome. Breathed out by God. It is the way to life and the way to live life. Someone else read 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. That keep through through twenty one. No one knows first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, he used men as as, as his agents. But that beginning of that passage, that more sure certain word, I love that phrase. Pick back up with me. One question. Yes. Second Peter what? Second Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we're going to come back to that a couple more times. I'm glad you asked that. Pick back up with in the in 1.1 where it says, Therefore it pleased the Lord. At sundry times diverse manners to reveal himself, declares will unto this church and afterwards. What were the reasons he gives here? Look at the Look at the top right. For the better what? In the, in the confession itself. For the better, it gives this list of reasons. Right. For more, and then keep going. And for what else? The more sure. Right. So we got these three major attack angles that... We've got the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, malice of the word. Now, it ends by saying they were to commit the same holy underwriting which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. This last sentence, very interesting. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. God's Word now supersedes the various ways in which He revealed Himself in the former days. Some of, those, some of those ways, God speaking directly to certain people, angels speaking directly to certain people, the Urim and Thummim of the priests, remember the breastplate, the two stones out of the twelve, the prophets, the dreams and visions. Now we have that more sure, certain Word and for all those reasons. Please flip with me now to chapter 1.2. And these go real quickly from here. Under the name of the Holy Scripture of the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. You've got the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. These are called the canons of Scripture. This is the Holy Scripture. That word canons, basically the measuring rod of truth. This is God's true Inspired Word, holy, sanctified, set apart. Owned by God as His own writing. Now the divines here were clearly confirming that the original books of sacred scripture were the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. Look at the last line, and this is a huge PCA slogan. Look at the last line of 1.2 under the New Testament all which are given by inspiration of God 
to be the rule of faith and life. The PCA says the infallible rule of faith and practice. And again, we see that 2 Peter 1.19, that more certain, sure word, that word more fully confirmed. God's word is the final and definitive word. Listen to this. This is another comment by Van Dixhorn that is succinct and right to the point. Listen to this. Those who ignore the Holy Scripture are doomed to stumble into ever-deepening darkness. Those who embrace this Scripture believe what it promises and walk by its precepts will never be without a guide or a light. They will find their way to their Father's home. Isn't that reassuring? Chapter 1.3, Roman numeral 3. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of other than human writings. It's saying it's decent history and it, and it stops there. The Apocrypha meaning was the hidden things. These apocryphal books were predominantly written in the intertestamental, intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the start of the New Testament, approximately 400 years. Now here's, here's the biggie under this one. Look at your bullet point. Again, the Roman Catholic Church held to the canonical status of the apocrypha, but the Protestant bodies do not. The Westminster divines, and went one more step here, they contradicted the teachings of the Church of England in its 39 articles. The 39 articles did not raise, raise the Apocrypha to the inspired canonical status, but it recommended it as a good example for life and instruction. Now, flip to the Westminster strategy or approach to this. These books are recognized as interesting historical sources of a secondary level but lacking the authority of Scripture itself. And their rationale was this. If the Apocrypha cannot be useful for establishing doctrine, we should not elevate it as a guide for the Christian life. Where should our guide come from? Where, where alone? <laughs> Holy Scriptures alone. Real, real simple side note. We should make, as believers in particular, we should make the use of the Holy Scripture, we should read it more than any other writing that we read. Period. Chapter 1.4. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the word of God. This is really interesting. You know, we, this, this is a good little, uh, we usually have a lot of these outside. We'll reload and get more in there, but they're actually gone today. But what is a reformed church? You read this, this, this booklet and there are six hallmarks or six distinctive themes of a Reformed church. Guess where it begins? 
Scripture and the authority thereof. Authority of Scripture, sovereignty of God, covenant, law of God, the church, kingdom of God. But right at the top, Scripture. This phrase ought to be believed. Look at this and please take this home and look at it again. Ought to be believed. The Bible's authority is so strong, so supreme, that it imposes upon us a moral obligation to believe it. If we don't believe it, we have sinned. And it's not so much an intellectual issue as a moral issue. If the Lord God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, breathes out His Word, which is right out of 2 Timothy 3, there is no room for debate and there is no excuse for unbelief, for He is truth itself. You can write these passages down. John 1, 14, and the famous John 14, 6. That's Christ talking, but we know He is, he is part of the triune Godhead. There is no excuse for unbelief, and everyone is duty-bound to submit to its authority. Now, right after, and it didn't take any time for sin to start knocking down the doors and we get into this, this phrase of biblical criticism. All right, Fierce assaults on the authority of Scripture have been made throughout the ages. You start with the Gnosticism that you read about in, in first, first, Second, and Third John, Enlightenment movement, postmodernism, this new anthropocentrism, you know, the elevation of man and humans above everything else, you name it. Universities, seminaries, now the church, mainline denominations, they call theirs a higher criticism. And it, it is just, it, it, it is absurd to think that they're going to criticize the author of the Bible, who is who? God. What else did God do? He made all things. But, but we, these people have, quote, been enlightened. Now, I'm going to quote to you something that was a, this is over a century ago. Okay, to put this in perspective. At the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, Abraham Kuyper, prime minister of the Netherlands and founder of the Free University of Amsterdam, observed that biblical criticism had become biblical vandalism. Pretty interesting commentary, is it not? And how much worse has it gotten? You've got mainline denominations running pell-mell towards the uh, satisfying the audience of secularism, hedonism, paganism, you name it. Anything that it just keeps moving at warp speed away from the authority of Scripture. No treasure has been more subject to malicious attack than Scripture itself. Now, back half of this paragraph 4, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. The controversy with the Roman Catholic Church was whether final authority rested in the church or in the Bible, the Word of God. And they make this abundantly clear that the authority of Scripture does not depend upon the testimony of man. You could have a very uh, interesting, charismatic speaker. That doesn't make it any more true. Or if the church is endorsing it, 
That doesn't make it any more true, but final authority rests solely on God, the supreme author of the Bible, and that the Bible is God's Word from beginning to end. Therefore, it should be received. Last bullet point of the day, chapter 1.5. This, this is, let's, let's read this. This one is lengthy, but hang in there, and it, and it really hits home right at the end. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the the efficacy of doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all of its parts. They're just praising how amazing the writing of the Bible is itself here. The scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. This subparagraph is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. This section brings in Calvin's ideas and teachings almost verbatim from his famous Institutes of the Christian Religions. The Reformers so strongly believed in the ministry and operation of God the Holy Spirit Someone please, if y'all will, turn to John, Gospel of John, chapter 14. Someone else, please turn to 1 Corinthians 2. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 16. In John chapter 14, someone could read verses 15 through 17. Again, that's John 14, 15 through 17. Perfect. Can you also read 25 and 26? Same chapter. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Got one more for you. Chapter 15, 26 and 27. Then you're off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> 26 and 27, chapter 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Excellent. Can someone read 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 16? 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 16.
excellent truths. Sproul gives this example of these radical spiritualists claiming that when they prayed about it, the Lord told them their actions, which were clearly against Scripture, were fine. We know that's an ink, right? right? The Holy Spirit does not speak with a forked tongue. He never grants the right to disobey what is inspired Scripture instructs us. The Spirit works with and through the Word, just as Brenda just read, never apart from it, never against it. His inspired scriptures instruct us regarding our duty. This all kind of comes full circle here. If you've got your Westminster Larger Catechism sheet, flip to it and we'll wrap things up here. First five questions, you're going to recognize a lot of this. Anybody, without looking at it, does anybody know the answer to the first question? What is the chief and highest end of man? Any? Very good, very good, very good. <laughs> Excellent. Good Presbyterian Sunday school class here. What is the chief and highest end of man? Answer. Let's all say it together. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Question two. Look at this. You'll recognize this right off the bat. How doth it appear that there is a God? Answer. The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. But His Word and Spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal Him unto men for their salvation. That's right out of which one? Chapter 1.1 we just looked at, right? Almost identical. Question 3, what is the Word of God? The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the Word of God. The only rule of faith and obedience that look pretty familiar to 1.2. Anybody? All right. Question four, how, the, how doth it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? Answer, the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power, to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade that they are the very Word of God. Does that sound like 1.5 to you? See how neat this is? Look at all of the... Take this home and read these proof texts. They're just amazing. We'll end with this. What do the Scriptures principally teach? Let's read this aloud. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Three very quick passages and we're done. Somebody get Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. Somebody 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And our last one, Psalm 86, 11 through 13. They answer this question right here. Great place to end today's study. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. Does anybody have that? Fear, walk, love, serve, obey. Someone please read 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 
all the glory of God and enjoy Him forever. Psalm 86, 11 through 13. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is our prayer this morning that we would glorify you and enjoy you, Father. You give us so many abundant gifts. And Father, may we fear you, love you, serve you, obey you, and do it with joyful hearts. Father, your prophet Isaiah told us the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. Father, may we cling to your word and treasure it above all things. Father, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.